You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end of life care. And now, here is your host, Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Ebema. And today I have two wonderful guests, uh, Karen Oikonen and Kate Wills. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. We're thrilled to be here. <laughs> yeah, today we are going to talk about your project, Constellations, Designing Participatory Engagement and End of Life. Uh, Karen, c- could you define uh, Constellations for us? Uh, Constellations was a project that Kate and I had developed together, and it's a participatory art installation. So what that means is we sort of draw from the experience of of art, but we bring people into that. So rather than having an art piece that's complete, uh, we create a large canvas and we invite people into creating what that art looks like. And so what we really wanted to do was explore the family experience of end of life and you know share our own experiences, but also bring others um, into sharing their experiences as being a family member when uh, someone someone has died and family being however someone defines family. Uh, Kate, how did your interest in design and art begin? Design and art probably began many moons ago when I was like honestly quite young and continued as I was like embarking on what professionally I was going to do. But I would say, you know, I've also dabbled in other areas and something about the both visual and a kind of different system or scale of looking at things, as well as something that is collaborative and engaged is what brought me back to art and design again and again. And really that's kind of a few of the essences of what our work does is is create a kind of collaborative place for people, whether that's a workshop table or whether that's an art piece in a public space. Um, And so I think that that opportunity to really invite people into a conversation and sometimes when they may not have the right words or may need help to kind of probe on uh, reflections is something that I've really been delighted by for a long time. And uh, that collaborative nature is really core to design for sure. It sounds like from a very young age, you knew what you wanted to do with your life. I don't know that I knew what I wanted to do, but I kept coming back to the essence of the same thing. So I feel pretty pretty good where I am now. <laughs> it comes full circle over and over. <laughs> and, and you're doing well. How about you, Karen? How did your journey begin? Um, it's such an interesting question because I always I get this I get asked this quite a bit actually from from new designers and other designers. How did you end up where you are right now? And I think I've taken quite a meandering path to where I am. So I started knowing that I wanted to do something creative, but it was at a time where what that meant was pretty narrow. And so I knew I didn't want to be an an artist, like a capital A artist. And I knew I, but I knew I wanted to use creativity as a way to make people's lives better. So I went into a school of architecture, um, did a, undergrad there, then immediately pivoted into a different part of the creative practice related to communication design. And then when my dad died, um, I think what I did is I used my my 
creative nature as a way to process my grief. So I went back to do a master's of design and strategic foresight innovation at OCAD University. And I used that opportunity to develop a creative practice that was very participatory to explore my personal experience uh, losing my father to cancer. And through that, I really found a way to this participatory work and, and to Kate, um, which is such a wonderful collaborative relationship. And we've really been able to connect with other people using that creative practice. But I never would have known, you know, ages ago that this is where I would find myself. But it's been quite a rewarding part of, of my creative practice. Karen, uh, design does not seem like an obvious ally to end-of-life care, death, dying, and oh. grief. Why does design matter in that field? Oh, that's such a good question. I really think that design at its heart is, is about people. It's about understanding what people's needs are, about understanding where we can meet those needs better, particularly in the kind of work that Kate and I do related to design research and service design and innovation. We're really going to actually use design in a way that is meaningful. We have to understand where people have you know, challenges that they're trying to solve. And in end of life, I think one of the wonderful things that design can bring to the table is a different way of engaging. So it's not a clinical way. It's a very human-centered way. It's very much about emotions and feelings and hopes and dreams. And it's often a safer way where people can have these conversations that are not being led by a more traditional role that within a clinical practice that might lead it. And there's lots of room for communication. So I think design can create a, a space to have vulnerable conversations that maybe don't, that often don't have, you know, the condition, the other conditions that can surround it within a healthcare environment. So Kate, uh, from your perspective, uh, what are some of the positive impacts you've noticed uh, design contribute to end-of-life care? Um, well, I think I want to build off something that Karen said there and, and just the kind of safe safety that the design approach can bring. And I think something that's a real gift in the kind of work that we do is that we're often brought in as a you know, third party. We get to set the the scene for people and really create and we really really strive to create something that feels comfortable you know we're designing an experience when we engage someone which is then going to be the platform that we probably engage another or design another experience so we're thinking about the setting are we going to have one-on-one -on -one conversations are we going to have a public space that's going to be inviting a pretty bold question around death are we going to be having a group conversation and thinking about how we create something that is comfortable for a whole group to really be vulnerable with each other? And so I think that, especially with death, it is something that is so universal. It is so deeply human and it is difficult to talk about and so vulnerable, If especially if you're not practiced at that, I think like you know, once you kind of, it's like a muscle and once you can get comfortable speaking about it and knowing your kind of head and heart around it, it might become more comfortable, but so rarely does that seem to be the case. And so I think the attention and consideration we bring to how we uh, 
engage others around it really makes it something that can be something sensitive and still safe for people. It's really powerful to hear that these experiences are born out of your personal experiences of loss, uh, which is significant. Uh, this is an audio podcast, so our listeners cannot see, but we'll have a picture going with the show notes. Could you go into, could you explain for our listeners yeah. why those particular designs? In some ways, I'm going to nerd out about design here. And something that you hear most designers talk about is prototype and iterate. And what we mean by that is you don't really know how something's going to happen or work until you make it and you test it, and then you're going to learn more about it and test it again. And so in some ways, what we created was like a visualized survey in some ways. We're asking a few questions. We have a series of answers, and we want the participants to share their answers. But we wanted something that would be more visually compelling, but also to actually make answering a survey with string work, we needed to present the questions in a way where there were shapes enabled because that was the only way that you could answer maybe multiple uh, answers within that same question. And so I remember we were drawing this out many times on a whiteboard to start and kind of imagining now if I had a string, I would go from here to here to here to here to here. And eventually that progressed from a whiteboard to what we what we built it from the foam core or gator board where we are actually testing it out with um, the the true materials. And for those who can't see an image just yet, it was essentially this, I think, 16 foot wide wall. Uh, it's all black and we have prompts um, at different levels and uh, different answers to those prompts. Um, kind of arranged in circles or lines, depending on the style of the question. And then each person was invited to take a small ball of yarn and start a loop at one end and then answer according to their personal experience. And each answer would really be its own unique shape that came out of it. And so we kind of saw each person's experience would paint a constellation as if stars in the night sky, for instance. So. That's how it came to be. That's powerful. Uh, Karen, uh, what were you looking for? So maybe building a little bit on what Kate was saying earlier is that it can be really hard for people to talk about their experiences. And I think particularly in North America, we haven't really fostered creating safe spaces in order to have those conversations. So I think what we were looking for was to create a place where people could share their experience, but not necessarily put words to it. That can be one of the hardest things is to actually say something out loud or find the right words to describe what you're feeling or what your experience was. So what we were really exploring was how could we actually create a space in a public space where people could see their experiences in the context of others, knowing that this is a universal experience, which is why we called it Constellations and maybe somehow see comfort in the experiences others have, but not actually have to talk about it. That was really our driving factors. Like, how do we actually create this experience where people can express their individual experience, but still feel part of, of the universal experience, not alone, not feel isolated. And I think we didn't really know it was going to work in, in, in many of these sort of exploratory, participatory things that we create, we plan it out and we imagine it how it'll work, but you never really know how people are going to engage with it until you see it in, in public. And 
on the opening night, there were, it was pre-COVID, so it was full. There was lots and lots and lots of people there. Not particularly a place where you think people might openly engage in an installation about death and dying. But we ran out of yarn on the first night and we had to go get more <laughs> because people were waiting to actually, they were waiting in line to actually do their own, weave their own constellation. And then we knew it was a really powerful experience when we observed one person finish their constellation, get to the end, and then take their ball of string and actually throw it to the ground. Like with some mm -hmm. feeling and thought, it was really powerful watching them just like throw it to the ground. And we had originally thought, oh, maybe we'll cut the strings and we can reuse the balls because they were small balls. But we thought, oh, maybe we could reuse them. And then it was really clear that what was starting to emerge was these little piles of, of yarn that were the punctuation of people's experiences. So we didn't cut them. We let them, we let them billow up and we let them sort of become this mountain of people's stories had to be respectful of, of what people had shared. And so it was in that moment we realized this is really needed. Hmm. It was a pretty powerful evening to just see how people were engaging with it and in such a human, real way. And there was real emotion and people would stand back and look at the hole. And it was a pretty powerful evening, as I recall. I just want to add, because I think we, we've done installations like this before and we continue to, and we always run into death being a taboo topic to bring to a public space. But this just reminds me that we have like a beautiful and powerful example that this was welcomed and embraced in a public space. And I know it isn't in, like always or easy, but this was a probably a surprise for anyone who's antsy about having and or maybe hosting or entering a space where where this is is like it was really embraced by I think it was like 70 plus people that night. Mm -hmm. And that was a real example that it doesn't have to be so taboo. And if it's given the right kind of setting and conditions, it can be a, quite a welcoming space and topic as well. This is really a powerful tool because it not only um, engages, you know, brings death and dying to the public square and, and takes away the taboo factor, but there's also an, uh, there's a strong therapeutic value. It looks like, um, what kind of, uh, what stories did you hear from some of the people who participated? Installation was up for 10 days and um, I would usually bring more string just to make sure there was enough yarn there. And one day I was there replenishing the, the string and there was a woman who was there looking at it and she wanted to come talk to me and she was a teacher. And she said, she said, I have a student, I teach high school and I have a student who just lost a parent and I'm having a really hard time connecting with them. They're really close. They're really quiet. Uh, they're really, really hurting. I can see they're hurting, but I don't, I can't find a way to actually engage with them. And what she was compelled by the installation was that, oh, maybe I could do something with a student like this where they wouldn't actually have to tell me, but they could maybe draw something out for me as a starting point. And she was really moved by it. And it really connected to me because one 
one of the pathways or one of the yarns, the constellations that was drawn out, we gave people little tags if they wanted to add any little details or anything. They were just really small, one inch by two inches. And on one of the little rings, someone had put where, where the question was, you know, who is in your support system? And there was maybe 20 different names, types of people that might be engaged. And then one of them was other. And on the other, someone had wrote on a little tag, my teacher, I was seven. And that to me just like really hit home that I think sometimes in the really clear definition of who's involved and who should be involved in an end of life experience, we actually forget and don't recognize those larger constellations where people that may not be in the you know clinical realm or in the direct family realm are that are contributing that there's actually other people in the constellations and that teachers or you know friends or neighbors or you know there were so many different roles that people added and that one just really hit home with that we'll take a little break and we'll be right back Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Sole Bema. We continue our conversation. Um, Kate, uh, before the break, we are talking about some of the stories, some of the impact that you felt from the participants. Could you share some stories around that? You know, there's one story that came from an email that was sent to us during the exhibition, and it was actually one from a woman who worked with a community of drug users and had witnessed a lot of deaths through overdose. And I think that that still stays with me as a really powerful potential for this kind of approach um, if we were to repeat it again. And I think even more increasingly, years after, we know how widespread and tragic deaths by overdose are and and just how much communities are really, really deeply impacted by them. And so it's something that I have thought about a lot since we were in communication with that woman. and also one where I think doing a co-design approach with people from that community would be a really important and powerful element to it because I think this was designed by the two of us based on our personal experiences and it was a family orientation to the end of life experience. And I think that added layer of how this is experienced for a community around drug use and drug overdose, that would be something I probably alone wouldn't be well-equipped to kind of understand and paint that picture. But I think this approach would be powerful and have a lot of potential if done collaboratively. Karen, like Kate said, there's a strong family orientation around this project. Why was it intentionally designed like that? Well, I think really Kate and I were exploring our own family experiences through it. And so we really wanted to give that opportunity for others to articulate the family experience. I think sometimes, sometimes I think through an end of life experience, looking at the family as a whole and particularly the, the broader experiences isn't always part of that process. And I was not in the same city 
when my dad was dying and I was going back and forth. So I was really experiencing it from a distance. And so I was having a very different experience than my siblings who might've been there. And I think just the way families are structured, chosen families or uh, birth families, adopted families, I think the modern family is in so many different configurations. And in many ways, I think death and dying isn't really recognizing that in in that way. And so we really wanted to explore what that looked like with the definition that family means whatever you want it to mean. And so many of the questions where we were asking who was involved had very broad um, you know, roles or very broad exploration of who might be involved here beyond your mother, a father, a son, a grandmother, etc. So we really wanted to explore broadly when we say family, what what does that look like? This project is centered around 12 uh, questions and I'm always curious, you know, for philosophical framework, why those particular questions? <laughs> because I'm sure every question is meant to bring out something. Like one of the questions was, how far away were you from the dying person? So when you ask a question like that, what are you looking for, Kate? I think that one, and I remember the way we structured it, we started with quite tactical questions and we got to be more reflective. And I think we did that intentionally to place the person in that time and place. And then once you're kind of situated there, think more deeply about how your heart was and the feelings and the tensions um, that emerged during that time. And I know, at least between the two of us, like as Karen said, distance was a real challenge for her and having to navigate this with plane rides involved, I recall, like is a much different dynamic and lets you be or requires something different of you for your presence with your life at home and going on and your life and home and heart with the person who's dying. And so we kind of wanted to give a, a place for those real practical concerns to have recognition because I think that they really create a, a demanding impact on people during this time, sometimes. And so this is kind of our our canvas to see what, what arises for people. Whereas by contrast, personally, I was in the same city as my mom and my whole family. And so that was a very different dynamic for us. Yeah. Karen, it's, it's, it's interesting that you did this in 2019. Uh, but then in mm -hmm. 2020, the question of distance due to COVID-19 became way more pronounced. What are your mm -hmm. thoughts around that? I think distance became the norm. When we were doing this, and certainly when I was, when I was having my personal experience, the distance piece was almost seen as, as like I had made a choice to be away versus making a choice to stay and live you know, where I grew up. And at times, like, honestly, I felt there was a little bit of judgment there, not from my family, but I felt there was maybe some judgment at times from the healthcare people around my father that you know, I should have been there. I should have been living there. And so I really struggled with the distance piece. Um, but I think COVID, you were distanced no matter what. So I think it's almost redefined COVID in some, yeah, it's redefined distance in some ways because even if you live next door, you were still at a distance because you still couldn't be there. 
And so my hope for that is that we've actually reframed what distance means and we can better support people to be there in whatever way they can. And hopefully technology now is is helping families connect in a way that wasn't happening when I was going, when I was having that experience. Um, but I think distance has fundamentally changed because of COVID. We were all distanced then. And that was not the case when, when my dad was dying. The expectation was that everyone should have been there in person. Whose expectation was this? The family expectation, the healthcare team? Who's I felt it more from the healthcare team. Yeah. I felt it more from not everyone, but I, what really sticks out in my mind is there was an early meeting and I wanted to join that meeting and I live in Toronto and I grew up in Thunder Bay and I couldn't fly there for, I don't remember why I had a young son. My son was maybe one at the time. And so I wanted to call in so that I could just hear it with the rest of my family. And simple as something as simple as having the ability to allow me to listen in through a call just wasn't able to happen. Now I think it's many years later. I think that we have a lot more technology that would hopefully allow that. But there seemed to be more of a, a mental model that family members are here in person or there's no other way to connect. And so I think that's part that started my exploration of, of distance and how does distance get in the way of really being part of that end of life experience and really being able to process it for myself, with my father, with my family, and also understanding how do I know how to bring my young son who is probably not going to rem remember his grandfather but how do I involve him in the process in a way where he can reflect back when we talk on it about the importance and the meaning and the history and legacy of, of his grandfather that he, he didn't get the opportunity to really get to know. Mm. You know, I work in healthcare and thank you for calling <laughs> us out uh, because <laughs> I can relate to the implicit bias. Like I work in hospice and you call a son or a daughter that, oh, your dad is about to die. And um, maybe they're out of state. And there's that implicit bias that your loved one is mm -hmm. dying and you're not even here. And we have no idea how these biases come out in those conversations and how it, it impacts the grieving process of the loved one. Mm -hmm. So thanks for calling us out in that. that that's tough. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't meant as a call out. <laughs> and I think it, um, yeah, I think it is a, a bias that, that showed up. And I did some previous research with my master's on, on distance. And I think in many ways, it's, it's sort of a tension between how families used to be and how families are now in a global community where people go are able to go anywhere in the world to work, to live. Like we're, we have families that are not two blocks down the street from them anymore. Um, now we have families all over the world and it's a wonderful thing. And it's an extraordinarily difficult thing to navigate when someone you love is dying and you make those choices. And I feel really lucky that I had enough means to fly back and forth fairly regularly. What about people? Not everybody can do that. And 
I do think it affects the grieving process. And there's an enormous amount of guilt. I felt an enormous amount of guilt not being able to be there when I thought I should be there. And then I felt an enormous amount of guilt not being at home if I wasn't with my son. It was really difficult to navigate. And and so when I arrived at the hospital to see my dad, and it might have just been, you know, someone at the hospital who just gave me a sideways look or, you know, oh, you're here at 11 because I was arriving late, but that's because my plane was late and I was flustered. But there didn't seem to be a generosity there. There seemed sometimes there seemed to be more gen- more judgment than generosity, and that's in part why that particular question lives in this in constellations. Is we wanted to bring that to light for others to just say, "Yeah, this was hard for me too." With that, we'll take a little break, and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Soleil and we continue our conversation. Uh, Kate, what emerges out of Constellations for you? I think one piece that we were testing with Constellations that we were really excited by from the outcome was simply a different way of collecting data that was more human and more kind of gracious to someone's circumstances. And so this was essentially like a survey. And what we wound up doing at the end of this 10-day exhibit was undoing the string piece by piece with a laptop right beside us and entering the inputs from each entry so that we would begin to see kind of patterns and each person's experience would be mapped and collected. So this was in some ways one big experiment to see how would that work uh, if we were to try to collect information from people in a in a different kind of mode. Um, and I remember we also were struck by some of the scenarios that this format didn't capture. And, you know, we certainly were basing this off of just our two experiences, kind of this trust and curiosity that having opportunity to talk and share about the family experience around death and dying would be something people would gravitate to. Uh, but I do remember, uh, Karen, you should also correct me on this, but I think that there are a mm-hmm. few scenarios that we didn't see captured and that mm-hmm. our blank slate didn't leave much room for. And so that's something that us designers, if we took another kick at the can, we would try mm-hmm. to rectify. And I think that that was, I think, suicide. And I mm-hmm. think aid. Mm-hmm. And yeah. maybe miscarriage as well. Mm-hmm. I think, and sometimes these emerged in kind of hints because we weren't here talking to people. You know, we had one event where we could maybe watch people a bit more closely, but otherwise this was left to the public and public domain without any facilitation. So this is us reading clues after the fact, but I think those were some scenarios that weren't well kind of represented in the canvas that we had and that I think that we would take another attempt at 
if we were to repeat this. So my next question is for both of you, but let's start with Karen. Do you think that this project achieved what you set out to achieve? I think it achieved more than what we thought it would achieve. I don't know that we had any specific goals other than to put it out into the public space and see how people engaged with it. And I think how people engaged with it was so much more than what we ever could have imagined. And part of doing this kind of work and being a designer is creating the conditions, but but then letting go and seeing how humans interpret it and make it their own. And I think what happened with Constellations was just so much more. And there's so many more ideas and ways that we can use it. it yeah, it did more than what we thought it would do. Kate? Yeah, I absolutely echo that. I think maybe that speaks to what little ambition we We just kind of had this <laughs> nugget of aspiration, I think. And we didn't really have massive dreams and hopes for it. And it fortunately really prevailed in a way that was, I think, gathered interest from the passersby and participants, but also from ourselves. And I would say one thing that it really did for us is it taught us more about participatory work and also the topic of death and dying and how do you make it palatable and inviting to people. And we keep coming back to it because we've done a few installations now and we have really noticed the invite to reflect on a situation is so much easier for people to do than to try to speculate onto something. And so when in doubt, we try to ask people to reflect on, on an experience with death that they've maybe been a part of. Again, not having to ask people for words has been really powerful. And so providing words and letting people kind of choose and shape those was really a clear takeaway for us. And we've mentioned this here and there, but I think the tactile nature of this mm -hmm. was really the winning component. And when in doubt, we try to think of ways to bring that in, like remove the words and instead let people work with their hands because sometimes your head and your words are a little overwhelmed or foggy. And that working with that yarn was really the key detail to this one, I think, that really made it work. Karen, what happened to the yarn? Well, <laughs> we after we took it all down, um, Kate took it home and knit it into this really beautiful uh, piece of tactile art, I think. And so all the stories that people contributed to Constellations became became one, actually. And the any notes that people left on the little tags were woven into it as well. We have a photograph that we'll share with you. It's really beautiful. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank Our you for pleasure. having us. This has been <laughs> Thank a, you so much. a really wonderful, joyous conversation. Thank you for inviting us into your space. That was Karen Oikinen and Kate Wilkes. You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Our studio engineer is Brian McKinder. Our operations director is Melissa Caprelian. And I'm Sole Bema. Thank you for listening. This show was brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to the show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.